It was 7.45 on the morning of Monday, October 19, 1931, the year the Great Depression truly enveloped Southern California. Thousands of formerly comfortable Americans were on the road riding the rails west in search of a new life and a stable paycheck in the land of sunshine. Most folks at the station that morning were too wrapped up in their own struggles to notice the tiny ethereal beauty who stepped off the overnight train from Phoenix into Central Station in downtown Los Angeles. The frail woman, only five feet tall, wore a brown suit and a brown velvet turban, and she carried a hat box. Trailing behind her was a porter carrying a battered suitcase. She walked straight to the ladies' room, had the suitcase and hat box stacked behind the door, and then settled into the station's ample waiting room across the way. An hour passed, and then another. The nervous woman continued to sit, and her baggage remained in the bathroom, much to the annoyance of the ladies' restroom attendant, Stella Conway. According to the Los Angeles Times, Conway had already asked the petite lady with big blue eyes and blonde hair if she would be leaving soon. The woman replied, No, I'm waiting. The attendant noticed the woman's petite left hand was heavily bandaged. She seemed a little uneasy, and when I asked her what was wrong with her hand and wrist, Conway recalled, she said she had burned it. The woman explained that she was waiting for her brother, a student at USC, and that she had no money to check her bags. This was a common occurrence in these hard times, so Conway kindly looked the other way. After a few minutes, the woman went to find her brother and emphasized that no one should take her bags. In case he appeared, Conway asked, who will your brother be looking for? Mrs. J-U-D-D, the lady replied, before disappearing into a crowd of early morning commuters. Hours passed, with no sign of Mrs. Judd. Around noon, she reappeared at the loading dock at Central Station with a tall, clean-cut young man. They had come to claim two large trunks that Mrs. Judd had checked in Phoenix. She was unaware that the trunks had been pink-slipped by the Southern Pacific baggage man on the train the night before. Perfectly understandable, since they were leaking blood. I'm Hadley Mears, and this is Underbelly L.A. When Mrs. Judd returned to the station later that afternoon, District Baggage Agent Arthur V. Anderson met her and her friend and asked what was in the trunks. Just personal things, Mrs. Judd replied. There's something wrong with them, Anderson said. You had better come and look at them. Anderson led the man and woman to the flatbed truck where the black trunks had been placed. The stench was overwhelming and flies swarmed in the air. The young man appeared confused and just a bit disturbed. Anderson asked if they could smell the trunks. The woman said no, but her companion was overcome. I can smell it, he exclaimed uneasily. 
Anderson asked Mrs. Judd to open the trunks. She opened her purse, and after a few futile seconds of half-hearted rummaging, explained that her husband had the keys. She then begged off to phone her husband, but claimed to have forgotten his number. I'll have to get my husband and bring him down here, she said calmly. And with that, the pair jumped into a Ford Roadster and disappeared. By 4.30 that afternoon, Mrs. Judd and her friends still hadn't returned to Central Station. Increasingly troubled, baggage agent Anderson called the LAPD to report the seeping suitcases. Detective Lieutenant Frank Ryan arrived at Central Station and met Anderson in front of the luggage. The seasoned baggage agent and detective were expecting to find deer meat, a common contraband at the time. They were in for a gruesome surprise. Detective Ryan took the lead and broke open the larger trunk. Nestled in the trunk, between bedding, papers, and knickknacks, was the head of a woman. After the men pulled a quilt from the trunk, the body of a handsome, dark-haired woman in pink pajamas was revealed, lying on her side, her knees pulled up to the chest. According to Judd biographer Jaina Bombersbach, Detective Ryan recoiled so violently the lid slammed shut with a thud. After composing himself, the detective continued his search. In the smaller trunk were two bundles of bedding. In one was wrapped the head and pajama-clad torso of a second woman, lovely, thin, and auburn-haired. In the other, a lower leg. Both women had been shot. Further horrific discoveries would be made in the ladies' restroom. In the hat box, a 25 caliber automatic pistol. In the battered suitcase, the rest of the dissected woman's body. These discoveries would launch a search that the LA Times called one of the greatest criminal dragnets ever spread in the West. By Tuesday morning, the ever-ruthless LA media had the name of their suspect. Winnie Ruth Judd, Ruth to her friends, only 26, a married, sweet-tempered, tubercular medical typist who lived in Phoenix. At the time of the murders, Judd's 48-year-old husband, Dr. William C. Judd, was living in Santa Monica with his sister, searching for employment. Judd's victims were also quickly ID'd. They were her purported best friends in Phoenix. The physically intact, dark-haired woman was Agnes Ann Leroy, an X-ray technician. Hedvig Sammy Samuelson, a former schoolteacher, practically bedridden with tuberculosis, was the one who had been dissected into four clean pieces. The media soon discovered that the three women were Wild West transients, rootless people who had traveled from place to place in search of jobs and a better quality of life. The twice-divorced Anne was from Indiana, and Sammy was from North Dakota. They had met in Alaska when they were both working there. They were soon inseparable and had gone to Phoenix to try to repair Sammy's fragile health. Ruth, who would soon make a tight pair of a threesome, was a sickly, pleasant preacher's daughter from Indiana. She had married the much older, seemingly safe Dr. Judd in 1924. But she soon discovered that Doc, as she called him, was a drug addict hooked on morphine, and his inability to hold a job would lead her to follow him from job to job in Mexico and Los Angeles, before moving to Phoenix in 1930. Soon after she arrived in Arizona, Ruth met Anne at the Grunau Clinic in Phoenix, where they were both employed. After Dr. Judd ran off to California, the three women became thick as thieves, surrogate family members in an unfamiliar place. 
The investigation in Los Angeles moved swiftly. The man who had come to claim the trunks with Ruth was indeed her brother, Burton J. McKinnell, a student at USC, who claimed that his sister had shown up in L.A. out of the blue. Eager to absolve himself of any suspicion, he admitted to police that he had gone with his sister to claim the bags. However, after receiving unsatisfactory answers as to what was in the trunks, he had given his sister five dollars and led her out on the corner of 7th and Broadway. I wish you all the luck in the world, kid, Burton told Ruth, before she vanished into the crowd yet again. Los Angeles and the rest of the nation were spellbound by the search for the tiny woman. They called her Tiger Woman, the Blonde Butcher, Wolf Woman, the Velvet Tigress, and most commonly the Trunk Murderess. The Los Angeles Examiner offered $1,000 for the tip that led to her capture. The L.A. Times, not to be outdone, offered 1500 Poor Dr. Judd made an appeal to his wife to turn herself in. I cannot believe that Ruth did this terrible thing alone. I want her to surrender, tell her story, and we will help her, he said. I believe she had an accomplice, if she did this at all. The Phoenix District Attorney and his assistants flew to Los Angeles. That's how important the case was. Charges in hand to aid in the search. According to the L.A. Times, In an intensive search of Los Angeles yesterday, scores of plainclothes men and uniformed officers thoroughly checked every hotel district without gaining a trace of the suspect, and the search was continuing last night with unabated vigor. Fears that the woman may have killed herself when she learned that the murders had been discovered increased as the day advanced with the search. Railroad stations, steamship docks, airports, bus lines, and every other means of egress from the city have been placed under the eyes of the detective, and all means by which the woman could escape are being watched. Sightings of Ruth, who was said to look like the movie star Norma Shearer, were reported all over the West. She was supposedly seen hitchhiking near Laguna Beach and Fresno. A transient woman who looked like Ruth was arrested in San Diego after appearing nervous and distracted in a hotel. A cafe operator in Venice claimed he had seen Ruth thumbing through a phone book, but never actually making a call. Her brother Burton's bachelor shack in Beverly Glen was under constant surveillance, and neighbors in the area were alerted to be on the lookout for Judd or her corpse. All L.A. residents who had known or worked with Ruth or her husband received frequent visits from the LAPD. As the week wore on, Ruth's frantic husband pleaded with her to turn herself in. On Wednesday, two days after his wife's disappearance, he issued a statement to all the local papers, imploring her to contact the attorneys he had retained. The statement read in part, If this comes to her attention, I earnestly beg and implore her to come to me, or these attorneys, at 420 Subway Terminal Building, 4th and Hill Streets. Telephone Mutual 7235 or Cleveland 61729 at once and with every assurance that she will be protected in every possible way. The following Friday, a desperate Ruth, having seen her husband's appeal in the paper, called a family friend. She refused to come to the subway terminal building, but agreed to meet her husband in the lobby of the Biltmore Theater at 3.30 p.m. Disheveled and weak, she was hustled into a waiting car. "'Why are they calling me a criminal?' she moaned in the car. "'I am not a criminal!' She was driven to the Alvarez and Moore Mortuary on Bunker Hill, where the police and her sister-in-law waited. 
consequence there, she collapsed on her sister-in-law's shoulder, giving the first clue as to what had happened. I am not a criminal, Carrie. I'm not. Do you believe me? She cried. We had an awful fight. They shot me first. The police took Ruth into custody. On their way to the Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, they stopped at a downtown restaurant for what must have been a very awkward lunch. An understandably disoriented Ruth ate vegetable soup, drank some milk, and nibbled a piece of meat and ate a few bites of dessert. Once in the hospital, she was examined. Doctors found bruises covering Ruth's body and a bullet lodged in her wrapped left hand. Gangrene had already set in. She was put under anesthesia so the bullet could be removed. As she was coming out of surgery, she began to mumble. I had to fight him. I had to fight him. Once she had recovered, Ruth was whisked to City Hall for questioning, while reporters thronged the corridors. Sure, police wanted to know why she had appeared in their city with two dead bodies, one dismembered. But almost more importantly, they wanted to know where on earth she had been for the past four days. The answer was just as bizarre as everything else associated with her case. While law enforcement's finest had begun their massive manhunt, A dazed Ruth had walked to the La Vina Sanitarium in Altadena, more than 10 miles away, where she had once been a tuberculosis patient. She had found an empty room and stayed there. As impossible as it may sound, no one entered my room, Ruth recalled years later. No one stopped me when I went in. I do remember getting up after the fourth day and brushed my hair and tore some paper from the lining of the dresser. Then I walked out with no one giving me a second glance. That Thursday, she hitched a ride back downtown to Los Angeles and entered the Broadway department store where she had once worked during her and Doc's brief residence in L.A. I stood around staring at people I knew or who knew me. I was in such a stupor that I got locked in the store all night, Ruth recalled. I slept in the furniture department of the store under a rug. When I awakened the next morning, people were rushing all about me going about their business. The press had a field day with these revelations. Ruth's story was backed up when a plumber discovered a confession, the first of many, lodged in the drain pipe of the Broadway's bathroom, which she had written on the paper torn from the dresser during her stay at the sanitarium. The LA Times and the LA Examiner each pressed a cash-strapped Dr. Judd for exclusive rights to his wife's story. Two representatives of each paper sat in opposite corners of the turnkey's room, a Phoenix paper reported, glaring and smoking innumerable cigarettes, hoping to prevent skullduggery by the other. Within 48 hours, both papers had an exclusive first-person account of the Judd escapades, both of which Ruth claimed to have had nothing to do with. William Randolph Hearst, owner of the Examiner, inserted himself further into the story, helping to pay for Ruth's defense and supplying her with a new attorney. Ruth stayed in protective custody in Los Angeles for two weeks, her devoted husband visiting her constantly. 
Reporters, gawkers, and quacks were allowed to view and question her, but Ruth refused to answer them. She received reams of mail from countless fans who had been shocked and pleased to find that the tiger woman appeared more like a wounded cub. On October 29th, ten days after her bloody arrival in L.A., Ruth was finally extradited back to Phoenix. I'm ready to go, Ruth said. Not surprisingly, Ruth's trial in Arizona was a sensation. Salacious stories were floated about the killer and her victims. The women were reported to have been lesbian lovers, sex workers, and drug addicts. Ruth would be convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death, but her sentence was later commuted to life in prison. Over the years, Ruth's story was forever changing. What became clear was that sweet Ruth had been having an affair in Phoenix with a suave local businessman named Jack Happy Halloran. He also was possibly sleeping and certainly giving money to both Anne and Sammy. Ruth would assert that she had killed her friends after they attacked her because she had introduced Halloran to a woman who had syphilis, thus possibly infecting them all. Or she would say that she had attacked them because she couldn't stand that Happy Jack was fooling around with them as well. In a recently rediscovered confession, written in Ruth's hand on April 6, 1933, she explained to her defense attorney one version of her motives for the murders. So incriminating was the letter that her attorney locked it away in a safe and it was not seen for decades. In the letter, Ruth painted herself both as the sole murderer and the sole cleanup woman. She wrote, Anne was used to the world. I truly was not. Jack was the only man I had gone with since my marriage. I was ashamed of the things I had done. I could not openly compete with her. I was married and ashamed to. Day after day, she lorded it over me, always smiling and fresh and sweet, well knowing she was hurting me with her taunts. Many evenings, Anne would kiss Jack and caress him in our presence. Then after he was gone, gloat over not caring a thing for him, but merely working him for money. It was not what Jack did, but the continual taunts made by Anne which drove me beside myself. I could not stand taunts. I just went crazy. Those taunts kept me awake. I could not sleep. I cried. I even prayed. I wrote my parents to please come to me. I was losing my mind. Wild ideas kept me awake. I took sleeping sedatives, luminol. I wrote Doc. My nerves were breaking. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I loved Anne still, but those taunts. I would take more medication to quiet my nerves. Cried to please get things off my mind. To sleep. According to Ruth, she was so infuriated with Anne that she hid out all night in the house that Sammy and Anne shared, prepared to blow Anne's brains out. The confession continued. Morning! Sammy went to the bathroom again. I started to call her, telling her I was there. I really did. Then I began shaking inside and remembered what I'd come to do. So this time I crept past the bathroom door, shot Anne. It was a low shot. Sammy called, What fell, Anne? I was hurrying past the door. Sammy came out, demanded to know what was the matter. I was limp. She completely took the gun from my hands. I was non-resistant. I said, Sammy, I am crazy. I have lost my mind. Give me that gun and I will blow my brains out right here in this door. 
She held the gun and said, you get out of here right this minute. I then picked up the knife and went back after her with the knife. As I grabbed for the gun, I stabbed her in the shoulder. The fight with Sammy in that breakfast room door, her own finger on the trigger when the shot went through her chest. Our fight is all about as I've always related. She shot me through the hand as I grabbed for the gun. The gun jammed, we fell to the floor, struggled, and I finally got the gun and shot. Ruth then claimed that she had chopped up Sammy with two cheap knives when she realized she was unable to lift her lifeless body into the trunk. In other versions of her story, Ruth said the socially and politically prominent Happy Jack had cleaned up the scene, had Sammy's body dissected, and told her to take the bodies to L.A. to dispose of them in the Pacific Ocean. For his part, Happy Jack denied that he had any involvement in the murders or their aftermath. And although he was briefly charged, he was never convicted of any crime. Over the decades, sympathy grew for the sweet-tempered Ruth, a model prisoner who became known as a kindly saint in the psychiatric facilities she inhabited. She was also an expert hairdresser, and society ladies would often come visit the incarcerated Ruth to get their hair curled just right. Absolutely astonishingly, Ruth repeatedly escaped, once living in Northern California as a beloved housemaid for over six years. At one facility, her sympathetic jailers even gave her a key so that she could come and go as she pleased. She was finally paroled in 1971 and lived a quiet, peaceful existence under the name Marion Lane until her death in Sunny Slope, a neighborhood in Phoenix, in 1998. Jerry Lukowitz, whose father was one of Ruth's attorneys, remembered her in her final days. She was a little old lady, but she was still gorgeous. When I visited her in Sunny Slope, she was always beautifully dressed, with her hair coiffed. She said something once about how she was sorry she wasn't going to live long enough to see the day when people would finally stop remembering Winnie Ruth Judd. Silly Winnie. How could we ever forget... It isn't every day a young beauty appears on our sunny shores holding a suitcase, not full of naive dreams, but dark, unimaginable gore. No doubt, Ruth thought safety awaited her in Los Angeles. After all, her brother and her husband, the two men she trusted most in the world, were both here. But what she didn't realize is that L.A. has always been a company town, where every player is expendable in service to the story. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me online at Hadley Mears, H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA on Twitter at Underbelly LA Pod. We're also on Facebook. Just search for Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Hadley Mears. This episode is based on an article I wrote that originally appeared in Los Angeles Magazine. Check it out. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. 
The music for this podcast was composed by Donovan Dorrance. The logo was designed by Sarah Wickham. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Underbelly LA. Join us next week as we go with movie star and restaurateur Thelma Todd on her last wild and deadly ride. A Table Cakes production.